your Bibles tonight to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter number 7. We're going to begin reading in verse number 1 down through verse 11. I have a hard time breaking the habit of picking up my Bible and trying to walk around and my my eyes don't want to cooperate and so I've got to make sure I get it under the light here and uh, and stay focused or lose my spot so I'll do the best I can. Chapter 7 verse number 1. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when, when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings and within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforted those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after, a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge in all things. Ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I want you to notice tonight, especially verse number 10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Of all of the things that I see missing today, I think the most obvious would be godliness. I mean, regardless of where you go today in this world, it's very seldom that you meet a, a person that you, you know, that you communicate with and 
spend some time with, and it's just a matter of time that you conclude this is a godly person, somebody that loves the Lord, that follows the Lord, and we see ungodliness everywhere. But the next thing on the list of what I see missing today is is the lack of a godly sorrow for the ungodliness. Does that make sense? More than anything, I think we see absent godliness, but the second thing is there seems to be no sorrow about it at all. Now, there's a lot of sorrow in the world, there's no doubt about that, but it's not, it's not the godly sorrow in which Paul is speaking of here. There are many people that weep because of what sin does. It creates sorrow, but they do not weep because of what sin is itself. And here in our text, we see two kinds of sorrow. We see uh, the godly sorrow that worketh the repentance, and we see the sorrow of this world, which he says leads to death. You know, the godly sorrow is that whenever a person is grieved because they have sinned, and the worldly sorrow is that, you know, that, you know, they grieve because they got caught, or because they had to suffer certain consequences for their sin. But the fact that they sin just doesn't really trouble them at all. It's just the price they have to pay for it. But the fact that they committed the sin against the holy God, now they're, you know, they'll probably do it again and not give it much thought. But real godly sorrow leads to repentance, whereas the sorrow of this world, you know, it might produce regret. Uh, it might even produce a resolution. Somebody says, well, you know, yeah. Yeah, I committed that sin, I got caught, I paid the consequences, and I've made a resolution, you know, I'm going to do better. Or it might lead to some kind of a, uh, of a temporary reformation, you know. I'm going, I'm going to change my ways. I, I don't want to get hurt again, and so I'm going to change my lifestyle, but it's, you know, not real, genuine, heartfelt repentance. And so consequently, it's not long before they slip right back into the same lifestyle. Repentance, godly repentance, is a change of mind, but it results in a change of action. You know, that's really easy to define. There are different preachers and writers that have written entire books. I'm talking about big books on the subject of repentance, trying to get it across to people what it is. And I, I, I really, I don't understand the problem. I mean, all you need is a dictionary. It means to change your mind, and that results in a change of your behavior. It's really simple for anybody to understand. But the problem is, is to actually repent, you see. I'm talking about having a sincere sorrow for repent. Uh, uh, for repentance uh, because of the sin that's in our life. And that's what is so sadly missing in the world today. That's the only suitable sorrow Paul is telling us. Was anything less? Well, it's a sham and it's a shame. And godly sorrow comes from seeing our sin the best we can as God views it. And that comes, you know, as a result of realizing that we sinned against God. You know, it's not just that we hurt somebody else. We said something we shouldn't have said or we did something we shouldn't have done, you know, and it it had repercussions. It hurt somebody else. Consequently, it hurt me. 
but sin something that that grieves the heart of God. And uh, the problem is we don't see it, as Paul said in Romans 7, verse 13, we don't see it as exceeding sinful. It's just a sin, you know. It's just one of the things on the list that we really, you know, we really shouldn't do, but it's not that big of a deal. But boy, when we see it as God does, exceeding sinful. In other words, when we see it as the worst thing in the world, when we see it as the most dangerous thing that we can do, you know, if we viewed sin as God does, let me tell you, it would literally break our heart. It would move us to tears if we saw sin as God does. And boy, when we look at the condition of our country, certainly we see a, a need for repentance. Now, about now, some of you might be saying or thinking to yourself, you know, amen, preacher, or you might be thinking about uh, how unsaved people need to repent which is certainly true, they, they do. But the context here is Paul speaking to them as Christians. Remember, this letter is addressed to a church. And that, that ought to remind us of something. That reminds me that it's easier for me to see the sins of others than it is to see my own. We really get good at condemning the sins of other people but we're not so good when it comes to confessing our own sin because, you know, there are many people that go week after week and month after month acting as though they have absolutely nothing to repent of. And, you know, if they do, they're sure not weeping about it. There's no evidence of godly sorrow. And so consequently, whenever they finally fess up, yeah, I did that, I'm guilty, you know, you caught me in the act. It, it's not anything that's really sincere. It's not anything that's going to last. It's just the sorrow of this world. It's a sorrow because they got caught rather than because they sinned against God. And it, watching some of these people like that, you know, you would think they must be living a life of perfection. There are people that have attended church for years and years and years and never given any evidence that they've been moved about any sin of any kind in their life. And that, that's, that's got to be a problem in our churches across the land. So the question is, what shall we do? I mean, do we just go on pretending like all is well? You know, well, what do we do? Well, hopefully looking at this story, we'll learn something from it. And I want you to notice, first of all, the great care that Paul took in dealing with this issue you know, he could have just ignored it. Paul had a lot on his plate. He had a lot of different things going on and a lot of hardships that he was enduring in addition to a lot of responsibilities that he had. And so he, he could have just ignored this. He could have said, you know, well, let somebody else deal with that. Or he, he, he could have said, shrugged his shoulders and said, what's it to me? You know, that's their problem. He could have said, I'm not even a member of that church. And he wasn't. You know, he could have said, I'm not a member of that church, so let them deal with it. You know, it's no sweat off of my brow, but he didn't. He understood that as an apostle that he had a job to do, and he did it. But he did it carefully. He, he tackled the issue head on, but he was not a bull in the china shop. 
Although he dealt boldly with the issue, he was very cautious. And that's why I begin reading in verse number 1, because I want you to see that he is struggling for words, trying to put into words how he felt about this issue. He's careful to explain that what he did, he did out of deep concern for them. Because he didn't take delight in denouncing their sin. He, you know, he, he, he didn't thrill at the thought of, I'm going to get them told. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't compromise. But he did speak the truth in love. By the way, I just wonder, and I don't want you to raise your hand or anything, but do you know what the sin was? Do you have any idea what what he was talking to them about the issue at hand. Their sin was the sin of tolerating sin in the church. One of their members had an adulterous relationship with his stepmother. It's described in in the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. Paul deals with the issue and it had become common knowledge that this guy is having an affair with his stepmother and, and, and Paul is shaking his head in unbelief. He said that that's something that's not even mentioned among the Gentiles. That is among the unsaved people. That's something they wouldn't even think of doing. How gross, how filthy, how sinful, how vile that one of your members is doing that. And the church had taken no action whatsoever. In fact, they had done just the opposite. They were boasting. Paul used the word glory and glory. And you're boasting in regards to this. They were boasting about, see how loving we are. See how kind we are. See how patient and tolerant we are with people, you know. They were bragging about it. In other words, they took a don't rock the boat approach to the issue here. And so Paul in that first letter took them to task. I mean, he rebuked them for their foolish attitude and he instructed them. Here's what he said exactly. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. That's one of their members. Paul said, put them, put them away. Well, as you might guess, that didn't fit well with some of the people. And they began to criticize Paul. And that troubled him. Somebody says, well, you know, I don't care what people think about me. Well, I didn't either my first year I was preaching because I was an idiot. It ought to matter what other people think about you. Now, you can't let what other people think about you determine what you do as far as right and wrong is concerned. But we ought to be very much concerned about what other people think about us. And so Paul's troubled. He's getting this report that those folks at Corinth, they are angry and they're expressing it. They're mad that Paul's telling them, you've got to put away that wicked person. Probably might have been some of his relatives. I don't know. But fortunately, finally, they dealt with the problem and Paul is greatly encouraged by the news. He just, well, I just read those verses about the coming of Titus and he's received the news and so forth of how Titus has been accepted and he's received the news that they have dealt with this, with this issue. 
And so here in our text, we have his words regarding this matter of repentance. Dealing with sin is never pleasant. But let me tell you, the benefits of doing so are far better than the results of not doing so. We're always better off to deal with it, you know, because sin's something that we cannot afford to ignore, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 6, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. A little bit of leaven in the lump. My mom used to make homemade bread. In fact, Bev made homemade bread a lot, and you put a little bit of leaven in it, and it affects the whole lump, and it swells up, and it's delicious, and all of that, but it affects the whole thing. That's the point. That Paul is making, you let that sin go, and after a while, it affects the entire body. And, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, Paul tried to emphasize the fact that one member has an effect on all of the members. So it's not just about, you know, uh, as long as 90% of us are doing good, the other 10% is going to be all right. No, no, it's going to affect us 100% when some of the members are not doing what they ought to be doing. So, a little leaven leaven at the whole lump. Well, Paul said, deal with it. Finally, finally, they said, we will, and they did. And we have to deal with sin in the church. Now listen carefully. Before we deal with sin in the church, we have to deal with our own sin. We have to deal with our own sin before we can deal with the sin of others. I mean, the Bible even talks about the fact that, you know, we're to minister one to another. Iron sharpeneth iron. And, you know, in our interaction with each other, there is a time and a place for loving rebuke even of somebody that you care about. So there's a time and a place for that as we deal with other people. But but we better cast the beam out of our eye before we try to get that little speck out of their eye. That's what I'm trying to say. And before, you know, uh, before the church tries to deal with the big issue in the church, you, you know, we first as members, as individual members, have to make sure that we have things right in our own heart because, well, let's face it, none of us like to admit that we've sinned. We, you know, we know that we ought to. We know that it's better off if we do, but we don't like it. We don't even like it if somebody points out our faults because the truth hurts. And we have a tendency to get angry about that. We get defensive. We fight back, you see. Simply because somebody reminded us, well, you know, that we sinned. Now, if we stay strictly with this context here, we could just spend an hour or more talking about this matter of church discipline. But that's not the purpose of this message. I want us to keep it personal tonight and think of it in the context of us as individuals rather than the need for church discipline. That's certainly an issue. Uh, it's an issue in, you know, in every church. And that's a, that's the big part. It's what the context is all about. But here in the middle of the context is this, this matter of our personal responsibility to repent of our sins. I can almost guarantee you that in the average church, you'll hear at least a thousand sermons or more 
on blessings before you hear one on brokenness. That's just not not something that you're going to hear a whole lot about. I mean, I could announce this morning, come on back tonight. I'm, I'm going to preach a message about brokenness. Who wants to hear about that? We want to think about blessings, you know. And that, that's human nature. That's, that's, just, that's just natural. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, who wrote several books on the subject of revival many years ago, and he said concerning Christianity in his day, this was probably, I'm thinking, at least 30, maybe 40 years ago when he made the statement. He said, we have such an accommodating Christianity today. An accommodating Christianity. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. An accommodating Christianity Think about it. He made some other remarks that we'd do well to listen to. He said, we're a million billion miles away from New Testament Christianity. I doubt if most people would agree with that if he would have just said that, you know, he could have been more realistic and said, you know, we're miles away from New Testament Christianity. He said, I doubt if 5% of professing Christians in America are born again. He said, there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of conviction of sin. Now, whether you agree with all of that or not, I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you this man's perspective. Here's a man that had written, uh, come from England over here and written several books on the subject of revival and was a conference speaker all over the world and much sought after and much studied when it comes to the subject of revival. And I'm telling you, he's exactly right. What we need is a conviction of sin that it seems almost non-existent in churches today. Uh, somebody posted something about a... In fact, I, 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 it hurts my heart to even say that it was a preacher, a Baptist preacher, that posted this how much he liked and enjoyed this particular service. I'm, I'm not going to get into describing it, but just out of curiosity, because I could see just from the picture there what I thought it was. And so I clicked on it, and sure enough, it's exactly what I thought it was. And uh, man, I thought I was at a, a Beyonce concert or something. No, it was really worse than that in some ways. And this is supposed to be a heartfelt, moving worship service. It's all about giggling and having fun and wow. And there's no conviction of sin. Here's a verse that really ought to get our attention. And I picked this one out on purpose. Psalms 34, verse 18, The Lord is nigh, that is, He's near unto them that are of a broken heart, and He saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Do you know who wrote that? Most of you do. David. 
And if ever there was a man that was qualified to speak on that subject, let, let me tell you, it was David, because David had a lot to say about the blessings of brokenness. Before we examine David's declaration in Psalms 51, we'll get there in just a little bit, but before we do, I want to remind you of a great tragedy that's happened in our society uh, and, and I've hinted at it already. But we have created a generation that expects all pleasure and no pain. They expect that. And, and this carries over into our attitude about sin. They feel like it's unfair to suffer due to sin. It's unfair to have to reap what we've sown. They esteem themselves, you know, to the, to the point that they feel like they ought to be exempt from pain and discomfort regardless of what they've done. And nobody's calling for sackcloth and ashes. They've banished the thought of brokenness being the bridge that leads us to blessings. And in so doing, they, they avoid what they need most desperately, and that is a broken heart. The sad thing is there's a whole lot of preachers that will give them exactly what they're looking for. Preachers that will cater to their whims and give them what they want instead of what they need. In fact, some of these preachers, whenever they start building a church in a certain location, they will take a poll in the community to see what the people want in church. And then they design the sermons and the music and the services to give them what they want. If it happens to be over in Kentucky somewhere, and they, so they take a survey, people say, oh, well, you know, we, we, we like country music or you know, or maybe we like we like Southern gospel or whatever it is, and so that's what they get, whatever whatever style. Then when they come to church there, they know what they're going to expect. If they don't like, you know, an old fashioned country preacher that you know just screams and yells and and uh, slobbers at the mouth and gets all excited, why they'll get some dignified dude come in there, you know, that'll pronounce all of the words right and be sophisticated and so and give them what they want. Isn't that kind of like having the the prisoners running the prison? When that happens, we make everything man-centered instead of God-centered. It's all designed about around what man wants. I don't think there's anybody that enjoys suffering. Now, we can rejoice in it, but we don't really enjoy the suffering itself. I, I don't think Paul enjoyed the pain, but he was able to rejoice in the pain, you see. But sometimes suffering is the thing that uh, is the best thing that could happen to us. I say that for a reason. Don't you listen carefully? Brokenness is the proper response to sin. Brokenness is the proper response to sin. And nowhere do we see that better than here in Psalms 51. So that brings us to the subject of David now. And I want you to see 
that uh, David was hurt by his sin, but David did not get right with God until he was hurting about his sin. In other words, he had to be broken before he could be blessed. So let me give you some reasons, and I'm not going to read all of this, but I just want to give you some reasons, and you can kind of read along there as I go through a part of Psalms 51, and uh, this shows uh, this shows what what happens when we sin. Verse one and two, David tells us that it soils the soul. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Sin soils the soul. Verse number 3, sin stays in your mind, for I acknowledge my, my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Man, you, you don't know how difficult it is for me to not just camp out there. While, you know, people have got this, this idea that it's okay to sin because I know God will forgive me if I confess it and I ask Him to forgive me. And God will forgive me of that and I can pick up and go on until the next time I want to sin. And there's people that operate like that. What they, what they forget is that they don't forget. There are women that had abortions years and years ago. And it haunts them to this very day. There are people who had affairs, and to this very day it haunts them. Because certain little things will remind them, and they'll relive those moments in their mind of a sin that they committed years ago. That's why David said, my sin is ever before me. I can't forget. I can't get away from it. It's always there. It stays in your mind. It soils your soul. And verse 4 says, it stings your conscience. I mean, in essence, that's what it's saying. It stings your, your conscience. Verse 8, it suppresses your heart. There's no room for joy and no expression of it. The last part of verse number 8, I want you to notice that it not only suppresses your heart, it sickens your body. He says that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Verse 10, sin sires the spirit. And that's why David says here in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Sin had sired his spirit. Verse number 12, Sin steals our joy. And he says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And I want you to notice verse 14 and 15 that sin seals our lips. Notice what he says. Make me to hear, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a right heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit. Restore my joy. Verse number 12. Notice, then, then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto me. Verse 15.
please. Boy, there's nothing in the world that will take the preach out of a preacher quicker than unconfessed sin in his heart. The hardest thing in the world to do is to try to stand up and to preach the Word of God when you know you've got some sin in your heart. May Whatever the sin is, some bitterness, something you haven't dealt with, you've been ignoring it, you know it's there, and you get up and try to preach, I'll tell you, it'll seal your lips. Not only does it affect the preacher, it affects all of us. It's pretty hard for you to witness to your neighbor when your neighbor knows your lifestyle is constant contrary to Christian convictions. It will shut your mouth. It will cause you to not witness. It seals your lips. There's some residual effects. It scars you and your family. If you know anything about this, the history of David, you know David wasn't the only one affected. It affected his entire family for generations. Doesn't the Bible say that our sins will be visited upon our children for the fourth, third and fourth generation? And there no doubt some here tonight that you still have the scars from the, from, from the sins in your life. You see, sin affects your appearance, your health, your strength, your testimony, your fellowship with God. Considering, considering all that sin does, wouldn't we be pretty foolish to just ignore the consequences of sin? I mean, it affects every area of our life. We, look, we cannot even worship God with sin in our heart. You might not be concerned about your sin, but God is. We can't, we can't worship God on our terms. We have to worship God on His terms. And without, listen, without brokenness, we are incapable of worshiping God. We can sing the same songs, give the same amount, do the same things, but we cannot worship God acceptably unless we're broken. And I say that because worship isn't about us being satisfied. It's about God being pleased. Turn over to Isaiah chapter number 1. and Chapter number 1 of Isaiah, and we'll pick up in verse number 10. And here it says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom, and give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of the goats. When you, when you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me the new moons and the Sabbaths and the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hateth. Now remember, this is their worship. And he says, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. For when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make your prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Make you clean. 
Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed and judge the fatherless. Plead for the widows. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. David finally realized that everything he needed could be found only in the Lord. That was a great discovery in his life. But let me tell you, it's brokenness that gets us to that, to that place. The place that we begin to understand the magnitude of God's mercy, the greatness of His grace, the perfection of His plan... And we begin to regret. We are broken hearted. We regret the fact that we have violated the righteous commands of a holy God. We've sinned against Him. You know, I, 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 I wonder what would happen in, in the churches across the land if we truly got honest about our spiritual condition. If we really honestly admitted that we have become cold and indifferent and apathetic and so forth. But you know, maybe, maybe we ought to think about what will happen if we're not honest about it. And that's not a pretty picture. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's why I often say the most miserable person on earth is the child of God out of the will of God because we can't be happy whenever there is a breach in our fellowship with God. You know, a lot of times there are people that have entertained sin in their life and as a result of that, they, they feel like God is, they're cut off from God. The heavens are His brass. They feel deprived of all of the things that He provides. But when we get honest about our condition, and whenever we're really humble enough that we're willing to confess it, suddenly our life changes for the better because, now get this and I'm through, not only are we better, we become better. Not only are we better when we get broken about our sin, whenever there is a godly sorrow and we are grieved to the point that we wholeheartedly repent before God, when that happens, suddenly we, we are better things, get better things, go better, but we become better as a person it changes us. Amen. You know, sometimes somebody sins and even after they get right, there are certain people that just write them off. Who act like they could never be restored. Let me tell you, some of the strongest Christians on earth are those that have fallen and got back up. Because there's something to be, to be said about what you learn in, in recovery from sin. You experience it's a horrible experience. You'd never want to do it again. You don't want to go through it again. 
But boy, the lessons you learn down there in that valley. Not only are we blessed, but it's then we become a blessing to others. And I think about David, a man after God's own heart in that horrible, terrible fall of David. But the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but what? He's not utterly cast down because God will get him up. But listen, that doesn't happen until we have a godly sorrow for our sin and truly repent of it. And we get back in fellowship with God and everything begins to change. I, I, I know a lot of times, and I know Brother Kenneth would say the same thing, you, you know, you get the feeling that maybe some people think that whenever the preacher comes to the invitation, he's trying to get people to respond, that, that it's like I'm trying to get you to do me a favor. Well, it would be a blessing to me to see anybody saved or anybody get their heart right with God. Sure, it would be a blessing, but I'm not asking you to do anything for me. Do it for you. Do it for you. And if there's sin in your life and your heart isn't broken because of it, boy, you need to, you need to worry about that. Amen? And if you know it's there, you need to do something about it. As I said this morning, you might not have another opportunity. Godly sorrow. If you want to prove that you're really sorry about your sin, he said it leads to repentance. Not just a new resolution, but true, heartfelt repentance. Let's bow in prayer. Father, how we thank you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for loving us to the extent that even whenever we have failed you so miserably, even when we have fallen flat on our face and we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people and we do such a terrible injustice toward you, we misrepresent you among the peoples of this earth. God, we're so thankful that you love us unconditionally and we're thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit that works in our heart and convicts us of our sin and draws us back to the place of fellowship with you. And Lord, you're the only one here tonight that really understands and really knows what's going on in the hearts of each and every one of us. But I pray tonight that you'll search out our hearts I pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll speak to us as only you can and draw us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. While we stand as we sing. Page 300.